Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I am your host, Finn Melanson, and this is the second episode in a mini series we are calling the Long Run Archives. I'm joined again by my co host, Brett Hornig from Trails and Tarmac, and we follow the usual format. We start by brainstorming the tools and data that could improve analysis and commentary on races in our sport. We do a Strava find of the week, our hot takes of the week, our best what ifs, and we finish up with some commentary on ultra running related news. One thing to note before diving in, this was the first episode I have ever recorded with AirPods. And in the process, I made the rookie mistake of taking the volume off of my standard podcast mic. So the audio is below standard. Lesson learned. But good content. I think you'll enjoy it. With that, let's get started. Brett Hornig, welcome back to the Single Track Podcast. Hey, Finn. How's it going? It's going good. And I got to say, this type of episode that we do, we're, I guess we're calling it the Long Run Archives at the moment. It got the first one that we did about a month ago. We'll link to it in the show notes. It got pretty solid reception. I think it's a relatively unique format here in the trail running media space. So we're doubling down. We're doing episode two and we got a pretty exciting lineup of topics here. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's always something to be said in the running world, whether it actually matters or not. There's always something to be said. So the first thing we got here is we're going to have a little bit of a debate. And maybe it's not a debate. Maybe we both agree on this. But the topic is how do we make it easier and more substantive to analyze races in our sport, like Western States and Hard Rock and UTMB. And I think I'll lead off with a little bit of a tangent because I've been thinking about this for quite some time. Uh, you know, one thing I've been thinking about a lot really, yeah, since I've been in the sport is how race commentators and analysts have very few resources at their disposal to say anything substantive about particular athletes and race outcomes and whatnot. When you typically read an article or you listen to a podcast or you watch a video about pre-race or in-race or post-race analysis, I think we'd all agree it's a lot of surface level commentary, mostly name dropping. For example, I know this person, they've done well in the past and therefore mm -hmm. they're in a good position to do well at this coming race. And there can also be some talk about the demands of the course too. And I think I'm glossing over a lot of other small details. And this is, a, this is no fault of anybody in our sport. Like the people that we have that do this stuff, they've set a standard, it's excellent. But what I'm saying is they don't have many tools at their disposal to go beyond that type of discussion. So I think maybe I'll throw this to you. How can we make the race analysis experience better for both the commentator and the fan? So, yeah, the first, I mean, the very first thing that immediately comes to mind that there's definitely still like a disconnect between uh, like the track road side of the world and trail and ultra is most major races in track and road racing the race itself will publish an elite field, uh, you know, multiple weeks or months before the race. So like, like I know who's racing the Boston marathon. I don't have to comb through the 30,000 people who are entered in the race. Like they have separated who they believe is the elite field. And, you know, I know for something like Boston, there's going to be an entire elite start, but I mean, at a very minimum, it would be awesome if, each of these, you know, more competitive races could just publish their own 
elite fields uh, before the race starts. You know, that gives mm. at least people trying to, you know, make their predictions for the race or, you know, just build a little bit of hype about who's doing what. Like, then we at least have a more up-to-date list of names. Um, you know, an ultra sign-up does a decent job at that kind of organically with their percentage ranking system it's it's not perfect but i think at that at the moment it's the best we have assuming the race is using ultra sign up to publish the entrance lists and you know have the signups actually be on their site how about like analytics like i think you and i are both fans of other sports like football and baseball and baseball in particular you have some really crazy stats out there that announcers can call upon to analyzed performance. I mean, one of my favorite stats is like slugging percentage for offensive players in baseball or wins over replacement to judge how valuable a player is. And it doesn't seem like we have that much data at our disposal, or it's been hard to aggregate data off platforms like Strava. So if you're looking at like the X's and O's of a race, and given that you're a coach and you have this experience, how would you want to see this done? Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, with something like baseball or even football, I mean, if, if one game is the equivalent to one race, you get a much bigger sample size, you know, versus like someone who's been doing ultras for three or four years, they might have 10 results to their name. Like it's hard right. to draw, you know, something big, which is why we get a lot of the like, oh, so-and-so ran a really good 50K two years ago. I haven't seen any results, but it would be foolish of me, you know, to count them out on winning. It's like, but that's like purely speculatory based off of something they did super long ago. Um, gosh, where was I even going with this? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it would be really cool to know, you know, even if it's just a matter of like getting a little dive into a personal statement from them, the athlete, or maybe their coach, how is their training going? Like, did they do anything different between their last good race and now? Like, is it similar? Like how, you know, just maybe even just let them build their own hype. I mean, that's good for them. I know a lot of people like to go in to the race, like as like the dark horse, you know, totally undiscovered flying under the radar, but that's, that's really boring for every day, but the race. Um, yeah. You know, there needs to be a, a better way to, yeah, to kind of give a little bit more like numerical evidence as to why I think so-and-so is going to win. It's like, Oh, I put in the best training block of my life. I did a little, training camp, like altitude stint up in Flagstaff for three weeks. And, you know, it was the best running I've ever done. Like just hearing something like that is worth talking about. Um, and, you know, I think that's something that the, the race directors could, uh, you know, they could help contribute to that with, you know, like, like we had talked about a little bit earlier, like, like a, a section for, media people analysts to be able to pull from uh you know whatever it is like aravifa's vault of elite athlete you know data i think it'd be interesting if and i've actually seriously considered building this with some of my developer friends but basically a landing page that has this really long form and you recruit maybe the top 50 male and female athletes for a particular race to that page and you have them fill out these forms and it asks questions like, are you going for a golden ticket at this race? 
Can you link to your Strava file? Can you link to your Instagram? Can you link to your Twitter, your YouTube? Who is your coach? How long have you been in the sport? Uh, what's your philosophy on training? Have you been injured? Are you feeling strong? Has there been like uninterrupted stretches of training? I think, and there would be much more detailed questions than that. But basically, if you get all of those athletes filling in that data and submitting it, this theoretical website can be a place for both fans and commentators to go to and to call upon pre-race, in-race, post-race to say, um, you know, if they see one of these runners out in the lead and they, you know, passed Robinson flat at Western States, they can say, you know, maybe to the uneducated onlooker, they look like they're going too fast, but actually I'm referencing this form here and I just called up their Strava and in their past race results and what their coach has said about stuff. And it turns out that like they're right on point right now. And actually I can tell you, this is how they're going to win the race or get a top 10 because again, they provided us all this data that shows they've been preparing for this pace in this moment for whatever it is, six months to a year. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, had, had they, them or their coach written out like, Oh yeah. Best case scenario. This is their split through X, Y, and Z parts on the course. We at least have some reference points as well. Like announcers of any major marathon, they know how fast the rabbits are going. Like they know how fast the race is supposed to be. Um, whether they do a good job of like commentating on it in the moment, that's on them. But they they at least know like they're supposed to hit the 10K mark in this time. They're supposed to hit the halfway mark in this time. Um, those are all huge unknowns for every race. And I understand in most trail races, um, there's more variables that are going to affect that sort of pace. But, you know, even a week out, you're going to know more or less like how much faster or, or slower from a regular year, you know, the race is going to end up being. Um, yeah. And like, that would just make previewing these races, you know, so much more, you know, just exciting and, uh, I don't know, like realistic. Well, and I think that the data is going to compound on itself too. Like if we start getting multiple form fillouts, race after race, year after year, we can start using all of that data to make really interesting after the fact analyses about what's going on. Like if we get four years of data on the top athletes heading into Western States, for example, we can start to say, oh, this person is coached by that athlete. And if I look back at the last four years of data, 82% of athletes coached by that athlete or that coach, uh, you know, they tend to finish the race. And oh, by the way, they tend to finish in the top 10, like they're smart racers because of this philosophy. I'm just spitballing. Like it could be any type yeah. of data point, but it, it'll just be interesting to be able to make projections based on all of that data too. Yeah. And, and I just, I don't think it would be like pulling teeth to ask elite athletes to submit things like this. Like if I'm going to let you into my race um, and I'm probably going to let you in for free, you know, maybe bypass a lottery or some sort of qualifier or anything. The least you could do is fill out my form that takes like 15 or 20 minutes uh, to give me some useful information to not only make, you know, the lead up to the race that I'm putting on uh, more exciting, but also it's going to benefit the, it's going to benefit the athletes as well. One last thing I'll say is I got all the love in the world for, our ultra running media and this is no criticism on it i'm just talking about the future we're just talking about the future and i think that the outcome of this is what can we do from a tool standpoint from a data standpoint so that they have more things to talk about 
before, during, and after the race. Yeah, we we have the technology, Finn. And there's, I mean, there's a couple races that are already already starting to do this. Like everybody who runs Broken Arrow, um, I know the 52k for sure, and I think the 26k as well. Before the race, you know, a week or two out, you get sent a Google form to fill out that is just has some, you know, bit like who are you, where are you from, who do you want to thank uh, for having helped get you to this point, and it's just for for Eric Schranz, who's usually calling uh all the race finishers in it's so he has something that's you know personable and relevant uh, as opposed to just saying like all right and around the corner we have bib 746 congrats runner you know like that's just not that exciting but knowing their name and having them have written in like i'd like to thank my cat charlie for (laughs) helping with all the recovery that's more fun anyway yeah, it, it's more fun, and like I just think it creates more opportunities for us to be fans, and it's just more content, which I think is great. And anyways, what's your hot take for the week? What do I have? Um, let me pull up my notes page. I've got some. Oh, you know, my hot take was I think uh, a similar hot take to you, and it was just various rebuttals to what I think you were going to say. Should I lead um, them? Regarding uh, DNFs. Oh, okay. I'll start Which, then. Yeah. I know. A touchy <laughs> subject. I'm sorry. Okay. No, it's okay. So I've been a broken record about this for about 10 days, but my hot take for this episode is that DNFs, especially if you're an elite athlete or you consider yourself to be an elite athlete, DNFs should affect negatively your ITRA and UTMB scores. The reason being is when you have a certain ITRA score and a certain UTMB score, you get certain privileges in our sport. You get to skip lotteries. You get automatic entries into the most sought after and applied for races across the world. And there's a perverse incentive, in my opinion, to maintain that score once you've achieved it so that you have that privilege forever, essentially. And I think a lot of athletes, I shouldn't say that I think that they're doing this with intention, but it certainly benefits them to DNF races when it's not going well for them. If they're not in that position to win or to podium or to be in a top 10. And what sucks is if you're an athlete who it isn't your day, but for whatever reason, maybe it's out of principle or you're just stubborn, you finish the race and maybe you get 25th or you get hundredth or last place, you are going to be penalized effectively. Like your interest score is going to drop maybe to the point where you lose that privilege of bypassing lotteries and being on those start lines for races like UTMB and Western States. So I think we got to change that. And I will say one thing before I give it back to you. And I've heard people say, well, you know, we don't want to encourage a culture of pushing through injuries and stuff like that. Again, this would be a great data point because I don't think we have it. I seriously doubt that even the vast majority of DNFs in our sport are due to injury. I think it's due to a loss of will to continue. It's all mental. So I will give it back to you and maybe we can have a nice little back and forth here, but this gets me so angry because I mean, I'll give an example. Like I, I got into CCC last year because I had a certain interest score and it wasn't my best day. I finished like a hundredth place and that knocked my interest score down like 15 points. And I had to go through the lottery this year for CCC and I didn't get picked. 
So like I got, I got penalized for finishing CCC. Yeah, that's, that's super tricky. Um, I, I definitely have gone back and forth on this because like there's definitely some points that I agree with and some that I don't so much. And maybe part of it is something that can't quite carry over exactly from the road running side of the world. Because uh, there, there, there isn't quite a ranking system quite like that that gets you into races. A lot of it's just agents hyping up their runners and being like, you know, this is what they you do. But, you know, in a, in a lot of cases uh, for those races, they won't get paid an, an amount that maybe that they were promised if they don't finish. Uh, you know, there's appearance fees, but there's also finisher fees as well. Um, that's just something that doesn't exist yet in trail running. You know, like maybe our sport does get to a point where some of the top athletes in the world are offered x amount of dollars to go do the race maybe it's not so much to go or yeah maybe it's to go finish the race at a minimum or else you don't get paid um but yeah i think the 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 big question is like how much should a dnf affect your itra score because you know is it if you drop out you're automatically one spot below last place in the race I don't, I think that's too much of a penalty because even if someone drops out halfway through and then they walk the other half, they're probably actually not going to finish dead last that person. So then it's like, where, where do you draw the line for this penalty? You know, does it have something to do, the smaller the race field relative to the number of applicants, does that increase your, uh, your penalty for dropping out. Like if you drop out of Western States or hard rock and there's eight gazillion people who want to do the race and only 363 spots, do you get penalized more? Um, I, you know, I was thinking about things like that. It's like maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it depends on the race that affects your dropout score. I don't think it should be so much to the point where, you know, it forces someone to walk in like, seven or eight hours like i i under there's i believe that there's definitely races where that's gonna happen like i knew that the first the first time i ever ran western states i'm going to finish that at all costs (laughs) whether that's you know coming in right under 30 hours or they're gonna have to drag me off the course like that was one of those races where i'm like i'm gonna do it at all costs like um and there's been a couple opportunities like that but there's you know there's others like looking at it from the mindset of like a professional ultra athlete, uh, I can see where, you know, when your job essentially is to win races and you go to a big race and like your training has been going pretty well. I mean, there's just more unknowns in, in this sport in regards to the longer races. Like, you know, it's a 14 hour race. And after seven hours, you're like, I'm not going to win. I'm not going to get in the top five. Like that sucks. I also have another race coming up in a couple months that's equally as important. Do I walk jog this in? And no, I'm not going to get injured, but it's going to delay my recovery process by a couple more weeks or another month. Now it's starting to snowball. Now my training block's not going to be as good for the next race. And like winning races and stuff like that's going to pay the bills. Um, you know, that's that's kind of where I see from the like professional side of things uh where you know dropping out of some races 
you know, makes sense to me. Um, if you're just dropping out because you're not competitive or, you know, you're turning into a full <clears throat> head case and you just simply don't believe in yourself anymore, like you need to go see a sports psychologist. Cause like, that's, you know, that's where you're going to get the most benefit. But like, there's, there's situations where I like, totally understand dropping out of a race from like a financial or performance standpoint for, uh, for some of these elite athletes. No, I, I, 1 million percent agree with that, especially if you're an elite athlete, especially if you're being compensated largely based off of where you finish in a race. I think it makes total sense to drop out if uh, the way things are developing in the race, you have no shot at reaching that goal. I should also say, I don't think DNFs are a bad thing. I've DNFed like three or four races in my life, and I think it's totally fine. This is elective suffering. Like you shouldn't feel compelled to finish a race it's not life or death um you know do what you need to do i'm just saying like from an institutional standpoint i think we got to change the reward system because there are some up-and-coming athletes that could otherwise get those spots in races and they are finishing and they're being consistent but at the same time like i don't think any less of jared hazen because he dnfs half his races like i still got mad respect for him running the second fastest time ever at western states and like he probably has to DNF a bunch because he has contractual obligations to, you know, get third place five times a year. And I, I do believe in taking a ton of shots on goal. So it just comes down to the institutional part and like blocking access to people that finish stuff. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the things that we don't really know either. I mean, I would have to look at a ton of contracts, which I, I don't think is actually legal for any of these athletes to just like show me their professional contract. But like, I don't know what it, what what contractually you have to do as a Hoka athlete or a Solomon athlete or a Nike trail athlete, whether it's, you know, usually there's minimums for how many times you need to race a year. Usually it's do one of our sponsored events, but uh, I don't know if there's a, you have to finish this many races or like your, you know, finisher percentage has to be this, you know, if, if you have to, you know, win three races a year and start five, it's like, okay, I have, I can drop out of two if I'm not going to win. Um, yeah. And like, maybe yeah. that's something that hopefully will get fixed on the internal side of things with athlete contracts and, you know, taking care of the athletes in the best way. Um, you know, it seems like the sport of trail and ultra is actually doing a pretty solid job of that um, just as they're growing. Um, but, you know, I think it can, it could definitely always be better. Yeah. Let's, uh, maybe we talk about the, the Strava find of the week. I think you got a good one. Yeah, this one, um, this one's been sitting in the back of my, back of my brain for a while. And sometimes it disappears and sometimes it comes back. And between the, the first episode that we did and this one, it, oh yeah, this is the one and I, I, I just like it so much. And I don't know if people know it exists, but, uh, we're going back to 2018 in the summer leading up to Western States. And Kyle Pitari, who has gotten in the top 10 a handful of times, he's always been known for finishing pretty hard and then throwing up into a trash can on the track. Um, in his training for the 2018 Western States, he sought out in Colorado the steepest dirt road that was at least a mile long so he could race a mile all out down it. Now, whether this is actually beneficial 
for Western States training, like that's definitely up for debate, but Kyle found a dirt County road in Colorado. That was at least a mile long. He measured out a mile and he flew down it as fast as he could. Finn, do you know how fast he ran? Well, I can Yes, I do. I do. <laughs> Kyle, Kyle ran just under 346 for a full mile. He ran 345 and change. For reference, the American record in the mile on the track set by Alan Webb is 346.9. Like, this was downhill, but this is also someone training for 100 mile, was able to make their legs move that fast without eating it. Um, I'm going to share my screen here so I can show you the... Uh, show you the Strava file. Um, and for those listening, I will do my best to, uh, you know, just describe it out. So it's, it's a downhill mile. The mile dropped 712 feet, which I would argue that that's actually too steep for an ideal, uh, ideal downhill mile. Um, it goes from over 8,200 feet down to just below 7,600. So I can only imagine what Kyle's heart rate was during this time. I mean, it must have just been through the roof. And, you know, he, he mentioned that he's never going to do this ever again. Um, but, yeah, Finn, what do, you, what, do you, what do you think about this? What do you think about a downhill 345 mile in relation to uh, Western States training? <laughs> well, I want to know what the upper limits of a downhill mile PR are for people in our sport. Like the first thing that comes to mind is like, is Kyle Pietari uh, the most suited elite athlete in our sport to give this a go? Is this like some, is this like a good benchmark for us to consider great? Or are there people like Walmsley or Hayden Hawks? And then on the women's side, like a Claire Gallagher or Camille Heron, like what, I guess I'd have to throw it back to you, like as a coach, what are the upper limits of a downhill mile at this grade and at this altitude for other elites in our sport? I mean, I, I mean, I just, I can't imagine this is the fastest that someone could go because running's never been like that. I mean, I guess at the moment, every world record is the fastest anyone's ever gone, but those are all meant to be broken. And, and I'm not showing this Strava segment as a call out for everyone to go race a downhill mile as fast as they can. But if they do send it our way, because 345 is the mark right now. And the other question, please do, I have, please do no, no professional like road or track person is like going to try something like this. Um, so my question is, has anyone run a mile faster than Kyle has? Um, I actually don't know. Like I, I'll have to look way back when, when I was in like high school, uh, David Torrance, when he was running for Berkeley, he threw up a thread on let's run saying, I'm going to run a downhill mile and I'm going to try and break the world record of uh, 343. I'll have to actually check on that thread to see if he did it or not, because that might be the fastest mile covered on foot. Um, but I'll do, I'll do a little more digging. And if I find, anything more, but so far, this is the fastest mile I've ever seen on Strava. And weren't you telling me offline that this may have somehow served him well at Western States? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, Western States happens and Kyle is hovering in the top 10. Finn's phone is ah. Don't worry. I'll wait. 
this? Is this your new fancy schmancy flip phone? Oh my gosh, dude! It is the. Uh, yeah, it's the old. We're keep we're keeping this all in. This is the old. Well, this is the new. This is the new Nokia phone. So in true. I own a flip phone fashion. It was not silenced and it went off with your super old ass ringtone. <laughs> nice. That might, that, that might be a whole new, a whole nother discussion for another episode, but uh, yes, I did uh, breaking news. I did turn in my smartphone about a week ago for a flip phone and I thought I was getting the best of every world. And it turns out that this thing can interrupt podcast recordings. So here we are. Wow. But anyways, you were saying that this okay, may have served so, Kyle well at Western. Yeah, so I actually did find um, deep, deep within the Western States site, there's a section that's called like Geeks Only. And in there, you can find all the splits for the last few years. Anyone running Western States, it's actually super valuable. Um, there's spreadsheets, there's like Excel and Google Sheets that you can download from every single person and every single re- recorded split through the aid stations are all up there in public. So you can see like, if so-and-so ran a really smart race, go look at their splits, go see what they ran. Um, But at the top of Roby Point, which is mile 99 and a quarter, 99 and a half, um, Kyle Pitari and Cody Reed were together for uh, seventh and eighth place. They came over Roby Point. They came through that aid station in 16, 45, and 21 seconds. If there was anything that I had learned before that race, it's that I did not want to be with Kyle. No one should be want to be next to Kyle at the end of a 100 mile. Um, so I actually found Roby Point to Placer Track, uh, the Strava segment from that, uh, which you know Kyle overlapped on that 2018 race. And... It's very fast. It's it's so impressive, and you know now it leads me to believe that that uh, that that bit of downhill training actually did something. So from Roby Point to Plaza Track, it's like a third uphill, a third flat, and a third downhill. And at the very end of a hundred mile, uh, Kyle did it at six forty nine pace, with some of his last sections being well under six minute pace and then kyle's last bit on the track was around 520 pace and he did outkick cody who is also a very strong finisher but kyle you know clearly had something in the back of his brain that just knew oh yes i've gone this fast before i can do this this is what i was born for so for the for the folks that are not watching this on youtube i mean if you pull back up that segment Kyle Pietari in the last mile of a hundred mile race got the third fastest time on that segment. Yeah. And that's the fastest, uh, fastest that anyone has done it in Western States. And then also impressively against Cody Reed, who um, is sort of, he's known for these pretty epic finishes at races, especially when there's like multiple runners involved and there's a lot on the line. Yes. Yeah. Cody, I, I had the pleasure of racing against Cody in high school and yeah, there's, there's this great picture that's probably hanging up at his high school. If, uh, it was some championship meet and it was for like one of the last qualifying spots for state or league finals or whatever. And he is completely horizontal, just full Superman dive across the finish line because 
if that's what it takes to be one more person, he's always been that, that person to do it, which, you know, that's, I admire that. Well, this is interesting because we, I mean, I'm sure as a coach, you don't endorse that type of training that Pitari is doing. I've on. never told one of my athletes to go find a mile and just run it all out downhill. <laughs> it's dangerous. I mean, we'll link to the YouTube video as well, but I mean, Kyle went through all the proper safety precautions. Um, you know, he's wearing split shorts with like a one inch inseam, no shirt, <laughs> but he's got gloves on. Gloves. Yeah. You know, he's got gloves and sunglasses just in case he eats it at 345 mile pace. Shall we go to our what ifs? Yeah, we got some good, we got two great what ifs for- Which one do you wanna do first? For this episode. Um, you know, the, let's do this, the, the second one. <laughs> which is that Magda? I, maybe, I don't know if you know, yeah, which the first or the second one is, but yeah, let's, let's talk about Magda. Um, okay. You know, my what if for this was just like pretty broad of just what if Magda transitioned to ultra running earlier? Um, you know, looking at looking at her running career, Magda has had two Hall of Fame running careers, one on the roads in, and then another in ultra running. Like, I think she's done enough on both sides of the sport. Like she would be in the road running Hall of Fame and the ultra running Hall of Fame, like I, I firmly believe that. And, you know, Magda didn't switch to the trails until like, you know, until like what most people would say is like well past your running prime. I the mean, twilight, clearly, yeah. Yeah. Like, and like, maybe that was the case for Magda, maybe not. But, you know, I would say that had she started running ultras five years earlier, it def, she definitely wouldn't be worse at ultras. Um, because, you know, she, so her, um, her like brief timeline of her progression. Yeah. So Magda ran her first ultra in December of 2013. And that was the North Face 50 mile champs. And then, yep. so that's basically the very end of 2013. In 2014, she ran six ultras, I think between 50K and 50 mile. Um, so, you know, six races, 2014, that's good, good learning. But that's just, that's year one. Year two is 2015. She wins Western States. So like she went from having been at the, you know, she ran at the Olympic trials in 2016. Um, and then, you know, tried it for a couple more years before deciding to switch to trails and then basically went 18 month learning curve to winning Western States. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. One of the first things that I think of is, you know, what happens obviously if she enters the sport earlier and I think she must've missed it by two or three years, but you just said that she went from zero to 100, you know, winning Western States 18 months into her time here. And like, how does she fare in 2012 Western States? For example, that famously cool year when Tim Olson set a course record, Ellie Greenwood set a course record that has not hasn't been, been touched hasn't even been come close to being touched. I mean, I don't know yeah, if Courtney exactly. came close, but hasn't been touched. Like what does a younger Magda do with the opportunity to race in those conditions that year at Western with someone of Ellie's caliber, obviously pushing her throughout, like, can she go under 16, for example? Yeah, I know. And I'm, I'm definitely not saying Magda was automatically going to win 2012 Western States. That's like, I don't think anyone was beating Ellie Greenwood that day, 
but what if Ellie didn't win by like two hours or whatever it was? What if there was someone running with her for a little bit longer, you know? Yeah. Then it's like, yeah. How much further down is the course record? Um, you know, what, what does Meg to take from that race in regards to just like perceived, you know, limits of this course, you know, what if it just pushes the whole needle further? What if, more relevant people in the track and road side of things see Magda coming to the trails earlier, crushing it, having a ton of fun. And it's like, what if there's someone out there who, who's, you know, not, not running anymore. Maybe they just retired from road racing. What if yeah. they went and did trails for four or five years afterwards? Like who, who could that have been? Cause yeah, she truly was a superstar on the roads. I mean, she, she's she as high the, caliber uh, as they come. She made the Olymp she made the US Olympic team in two thousand eight in the marathon. Yeah. Like that's yeah. That's she got fifth at the Chicago marathon. Um, like Magda's done she's she's done, you know, she's had one of the better uh, you know, road and track running careers. Um you know, her fifth place in Chicago was in twenty ten. What if what yeah, what if after that she decides, okay, I'm gonna that was amazing, you know, and I made it to the Olympics in 08 fifth place at Chicago. That's great. I'm going, I'm going to trails now. Now that's two years prior to the magical 2012 Western States year. I think you just mentioned it earlier, but yeah, if, if, if a younger Magda enters the sport at the height of her running powers and all of her peers see that, who does she influence to come over with her to trails? Because we just had a guy, Garrett Heath on the podcast who is running legend. I mean, on the road and the track, absolute legend. He's older now, similar to the way that Magda came over in her late 30s. He's, I think he's 36 or 37, switching to trails. And you wonder, or at least I wonder, what the differential is there. When you leave the sport of road or track at 38 to go to trails, does that have less of an influence than leaving at 30 because people see you in, in older age, aging out of events, getting too slow for the 5k or the 10k or whatever. And like trails is like that last destination before full-on retirement. So it's not as influential. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if there is one thing that I've learned in the last few years, it's that, you know, you can run your best hundred miler at 40 or 42 or 43. Yes. Um, yes. You know, I mean, I think hundred, hundred miles is far enough where, <clears throat> you know, it takes more than just speed and running talent, which is why I also don't think anyone from the road and track side of the world can come over to trails and just crush it. Like, you know, I've seen, I've seen many an argument of like, oh, how much under the Western States course record would Galen Rupp go if he <laughs> decided to run hundred miles? And it's like, maybe, maybe that's a what if for another episode, but I'm just like, I don't, I don't think he ever breaks the course record. Like I've watched him run enough times where like, I just don't think he's that kind of runner you know, track hundred miler, flat hundred miler. Like, okay, that's a different conversation. But like when you actually do throw a little bit of mountain in there, I think it does take a special kind of It's a runner. huge variable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I forgot to finish the thought on Garrett, but I, I actually think that he could have a good career, like a good five, at least five or six years in even shorter distance trail stuff. And I don't yeah, know what he's going to totally. do above 25K, but man, like people like him just excite me so much. Yeah, I'm really excited. I mean, he's... He, he's created a, like a cult-like fan base for for him, whether whether he wanted to or not, just because of how incredible of a gritty cross-country runner he was. Um, you know, 
he's he's beaten some of the best runners in the world that you know he would have no chance of beating on the track but you throw a little mud a little bit of cold wind in there and he just throttles them and it's like that person if they went to trails i mean i remember talking about this on long runs in college of like who should who should run a trail race because that's what we do at a small school in ashland oregon is already be talking about trails even though we're in college and like you know garrett heath was one of the names that come up of like oh if if he did a trail race i think he would be one of the few like superstars of in both uh yeah you know both events of the sport so this next one here i guess i'll get the conversation started what if sally mccray never gets her golden ticket in 2014 at sean o'brien to go to western states that summer what yeah, makes that so, an interesting what if this one's really cool because at at first glance this doesn't seem like that big of a what if because you're like oh well if she doesn't get it there she probably just gets a golden ticket somewhere else because she's really fit but that's not the angle of this what if what happened during then was a uh, an up-and-coming like running filmmaker and friend of Sally named Billy Yang was there during that race and he filmed it and he made a great, great video. It's one of his first ones that like really went big and it's gotten, you know, quite a few views now that then led to Western time, which is one of my favorite, favorite movies that Billy's made. And it's about Sally's first Western States and it's absolutely incredible. And anyone who hasn't watched it, needs to go watch it that kind of that put him on the map and you know the other thing that did was that was a huge boost for this new trail running team oh i'm actually wearing their shirt um nike trail you know the nike trail team was a whole bunch of these like somewhat you know newer almost seemingly like inexperienced trail runners and then nike's all of a sudden just like we're throwing together a super team and then that that turned into one of the first teams that really did a, you know, what I feel is like a really good job of their social media presence. You know, like I, I can't really remember another trail team prior to them that was like not only at races and doing well, but they had media people. They were making movies. You know, Billy was over there throwing up stuff on their, you know, Instagram pages. They were doing photo shoots. They all had matching kits. And Billy was one of the biggest reasons why that like really blew up. And I don't know if that happens had it not been for Sally getting that first golden ticket at Sean O'Brien because just what she did that day. And then ultimately Western States made for such a great story. One thing I'm curious about, maybe you know the details here, but was Sally the anchor of that Nike team? Like, did she get sponsored first and then all the other dominoes fell into place? You know, that's a good question. I actually don't know. Like, I know all of the signings like more or less happened at the same time, like, you know, over the span of like, say six months. Mm. Um, I, I don't know who, you know, who was the first one and did they have any influence in regards to picking or recruiting the next few people? Um, I don't know the exact story. I mean, when, when you're making a trail team and they're cool enough where the manager can drive a Nike trail, Winnebago down to Western States, like that's going to turn some heads and that's just, that's fun. That's good for the sport. And 
yeah, I mean, you got to imagine that to some extent, the, the film that Billy made that year of Sally at Western States, that created at least some momentum to go and create, I think the next summer. 2015, that, yeah. Tw- or, yeah, it was the it same was the summer next, then. No, it was the next, was it? Was it 2015 or 16? No, no, it was because was... Western States was 2014. Yeah, in Yeah. Summer later, and they get this whole squad, Sally included, and God knows how many ultra runners and trail runners and non-ultra runners that inspired to get over to Chamonix in some capacity and to make UTMB a big deal for Americans. So there's a lot there. Yeah, I know. I mean, there's been Americans that have been as or more successful at UTMB than that 2015 year when the Nike trail team went. But from like a, like a social media standpoint, they, they took it to a whole nother level um, in regards to just people watching Billy's UTMB movie and being like, I have never heard of this race and now I want to do it. I think that is so cool. And going all back to Sally's golden ticket at Sean O'Brien, I don't know if any of that exists if she doesn't do that first, that first golden ticket race there. So this is interesting. I was just doing some research while you were talking there. Uh, Did any other Americans do well at UTMB in 2015? And to go back to our first person in this What If series, Magda Boulay got second at the 2015 CCC. She was doing a Western State CCC double. So she got first at, at Western in June. And then two and a half months later, went out to Chamonix and got second at CCC. And she was not a part of that UTMB filming. But you got to also imagine that yeah, Billy probably met her there that summer. And then, of course, they made Life in a Day, which she was a part of another famous Western States film like two or three years later. That's actually his most viewed of, movie. Most viewed movie. So there's yeah, a lot Life of butter black that going on. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, real quick, we I want to recap Magda's 2015 season. It's one of the Please better do. ones. Please do. Please do. Magda's 2015 summer of racing. I didn't realize this until we were looking into this what if. I did not realize how amazing her 2015 year of running was. So it starts out in February of 2015. She does the Sean O'Brien 100K. She wins it. In March, she goes to the Chuckanut 50K and wins it. She does the another 50K in the Bay Area, wins it. She does the Canyons 100K in May, wins it. In June, she does the Western States 100 Mile, wins it. That's her first 100 Mile. And I think the two prior 100Ks were her first 100Ks. Uh, then in August, she goes and does CCC and gets second. So it's actually her first loss of the season. But, you know, second at CCC is pretty legit. And there have not been, that might be one of the more successful Western states, like UTMB week races, regardless of distance. Um, I think that's one of the better doubles out there. And then... Most people would call it a season after that. In September, one month later, Magda goes to the Ultra Race of Champions, which was at the time in Auburn. And I actually did that race, and it was awful. It was 105 degrees out and started and finished in Auburn. She wins that too. And then then she finally caps the season. But that is so much big racing and big winning in one year. So one a couple, couple questions. Well, actually, maybe one statement first. That is probably the greatest season of any athlete, male or female, in our sport of all time. I, I just can't imagine 
that many wins across that many races. Um, we'll have to take a look. I know Tim Olson had a couple like that. Tim that might have, yeah. Pretty monstrous. Like he maybe, did, maybe he Courtney did the, too. Uh, Courtney as well. Like I know Tim. I'll have to look back on it. We were just talking about it at the store, the running store, the other day. He did the UTMB Run Rabbit Double, which was, in hindsight, probably not the greatest idea. But like, there's there's no time between those two races. There's barely enough time to travel across the world to get to the start line of the other one. And he was pretty competitive in both. Um, and I think he did a lot of other races that summer too. But maybe, that's amazing. I yeah. like maybe maybe that'll be a future segment for another episode. Is just like some insane seasons that some of the best ultra runners have put out uh you know whether it's one summer or one year of racing because that's just something we don't we don't really see that too much anymore i mean yeah the first person that comes to mind who's kind of gotten away with that is uh courtney DeWalter. um she's she's been one to line up and really throw down a lot of humongous races over the course of one year well i (laughs) Maybe this is a hot take, maybe it isn't, but I actually think it's probably going to be a thing of the past pretty soon. Like as more competitive athletes enter the sport, you, you're going to have to pick your races more strategically. Like, and I, and this is this is this is both to Tim Olson and to Magda. Like, I I often wonder, you know, a how do you race that often and stay healthy over that stretch of time, and then and just put up good performances, and then b is it the dominance of Tim Olson and Magda Boulay, or is it the lack of depth in the sport in that particular era for them to be able to go in and take care of business race in race out. One thing that their, you know, seasons have in common, they were both relatively new to the sport of ultra running when they did this. Yes. Um, you know, like Tim, when Tim won his first Western States, he had only been running like running period for like two years. That's amazing. Yeah. Then he, he didn't run in college or anything, right? He was just like, he just picked no. it up in his like 20s. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, when I came to Southern Oregon University my freshman year, he was, he was the, he was the massage guy that our team would go to if we were beat up or injured because he was really good. And that was, so I first met him in 2009 and he was not a runner at that point. Like I knew him as our kind of hippie looking guy who lived in Ashland who did massage really well. That was what he did. And then in 2010, he started running. In 2012, he wins Western States. Oh, my gosh. Well, let's uh, I say we close it out with news here. What is, uh, I guess we just had Trans Grand Canaria. We just had way too cool 50K. Any any thoughts on either of those two races? Um, from way too cool, so... I was kind of a bummer not to like really know who was running way too cool because uh, their entrance list was in alphabetical order and there was no published elite field. Um, Yeah, but looking at the results, I want to know more about Eli Hemming, who got second to Tim Tollison. Tim ran 313. 313 is very fast. It's the fourth best all time. I clicked Eli Hemming on Ultra Sign Up, and as far as Ultra Sign Up goes, this was his first 50K. And Googling his name, uh, it comes up that he is a pretty good triathlete. Um, 
is this a permanent switch? Because running 316 at way too cool makes me want to tell him you better permanently switch to trail running because you're very good at it. Um, so that's just that's exciting, you know. And you know, Tim Tim Tolleson, this is a this was a a stepping stone on, on in regards to his building block for Western states um, to be running that's fast, you know, with Western states being, you know, one of the goal races in mind. That's pretty cool. I'm rooting for him. I really hope, I, I know he got top 10 fifth last year and anybody would be stoked about that, but I, I do think he considers himself to be in the highest echelon of hundred milers in our sports still. And so I hope he puts it all together and at least gets on that podium. Maybe he can get to win at, uh, at this year's event. It's anybody's race with Jim out of it, right? It's wide open. Yep. You know, as, as just the previous year of results go, it's, uh, it's Tyler Green's race to lose. Very true. Yeah. Very true. Um, we had a world record in the 50 K on the men's side. Uh, this past oh, weekend. one second though. One second. I got to give my buddy, uh, training partner, former roommate, Jimmy Elam, some props. He went out to trans grand Canaria last week and mm. I, Dylan Bowman actually predicted had his prediction was Jimmy would podium. I, I thought the same thing because I just know how strong of a racer he is. I think he got twenty fifth or twenty fourth. It wasn't his day, but going back to our earlier conversation in this episode, he's a finisher. Even when it's yeah. not his day, he typically finds a way to at least take care of business and notch a finish, and he did that. So. I'm stoked for him. Just wanted to give him a shout out on the pod. And I don't know if he's going to do Canyon's 100K in April or what he's got next, but whatever he does in Europe later this year or beyond, watch out because that guy's strong when uh, when he's clicking. Absolutely. Yeah, Jimmy. Jimmy's a very, very talented runner for sure and has been one of the few that's been able to take a whole bunch of track and road speed and translate it to very good trail running. For those that don't know Jimmy, he's one of those Chico State crushers alongside yep. Tim Tollison and Anthony Castales. And whatever they do there produces great mountain ultra trail runners. Yeah, Chico's probably given SOU a run for their money uh, in regards <laughs> to uh, alum ultra runners. And I'm only saying it in that way and not the other way around because I'm an SOU alum. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, I interrupted you on the world record. Let's talk um, about it. Yeah, so we had a world record in the 50K, and here's my hot take. I think within a few years, that world record will be at least five minutes better. Um, so what was the world record? So it, it was 243, I think, or 242. For 50K? And for 50K, and now it's 240 and 13 seconds, which is, uh, I think it was 509 pace. But there's there's a lot of, like, race grading calculators out there and i don't know how dialed in they are for 50k but like if you put in a marathon time and you try and get give it the same grade as this 50k a lot of the calculators uh rate this 50k about a 213 marathon so the world record got broken but there's been a lot of people who have run under 213 um i figured i mean i'm sure some of the best marathoners in the world they could run five minute pace for 50k like it's only five more miles and they're slowing their marathon pace down by 15 seconds a mile yeah increasing the pace to five minutes a mile that knocks five minutes off the world record right there and grades out to about a 209 marathon 
Has Kipchoge ever done 50K? No, but in a recent podcast, he said he would love to, uh, he loves the idea of trying an ultra marathon. Um, and then the follow-up question was like, how far? And he actually said, um, like, I would even be curious to see what a multi-day race felt like. Wow. I mean, I don't know if we'll ever see that, but it is a thought that's crossed his mind. It's like, how many miles can Eliud Kipchoge run in four, five, six days? Um, but he's, I mean, I'm sure if, if there was enough money on the table, he could crush the 50K world record. And that's not yeah. to, you know, that's not to discredit. Um, you know, no, everyone the, has a role the, to the play. One, yeah, but, you know, I, you know, and then that got me thinking too of like, is there, I'm sure no one will say yes, at least at the moment, but is there any benefit for like a world-class marathoner to run a 50 K so that way then when they do run a marathon, it's not the longest thing they've ever done. Um, Cause that's the case for a lot of shorter races. Yeah. This, it's again, I'm just I feel I'm like making we're... excuses to create a really competitive and fast 50 K is like, it's good training for your really fast marathon because then it'll, it'll seem short. Well, this has been awesome, man. I feel like uh, we covered a bunch of great topics again. We got some. You didn't put it going on off again. I couldn't even find it. I just, I, you know, we're going to just talk through this. I tried to find it in this backpack over here and it's a black phone. It's a black backpack. It's too and small. It's and so, and yeah, it's like one of those phones in Austin Powers, you know, like this from the be, future or whatever. It's like what Killian has in his bag at UTMB. Yes, this this is a UTMB phone basically, yeah. and uh, so it has now interrupted us twice. And I won't make this. You know what is it? Michael Scott says, uh, "Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice." I can't remember the last part of it, but Office fans will get it. <laughs> Anyways, dude, this has oh, been uh, this has been awesome, man. Like I said, I I think we got our various segments of the show locked in, and maybe that new one with greatest seasons of all time. And um, for any listeners out there. Uh, that want to hear us talk about other things, let us know. Email Brett, email me. Brett is uh, Brett at trailsandtarmac.com. And I'm Finn at singletrack.run. But also just hit us up on social too. I'll put, I'll put Brett's stuff in the show notes as well. And we're definitely back for a number three, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And for anyone listening too, like we're not full set on our, you know, itinerary of events every episode. Like if we talk about something and like a lot of people email us and are like, it's actually kind of boring, but I really loved when you talked about this. Like, I want to know about that. Like, I want to make every segment of these episodes exciting and, you know, worthwhile yes. to listen to. And if there's anything new, you're like, you're on a run and you're like, oh, this would be a funny ultra running talk show segment. Throw it our way. Please you know? do. Please do. I mean, one one that I'm thinking of, I know we talked about this offline, but I really want to do an ultra running draft where basically we we take like the eight to ten most prominent brand shoe brands in the sport and we redraft their top five male and female athletes for example and then track their progress throughout the season something like that would be fun i think we'll also do a bunch so of fun. stuff around like western states and utmb oh, yeah. as well so in addition to what we already have going on we'll there'll be a bunch of episodes that come out around that too and so know that that is in the pipeline oh. The one day Western States fantasy season. Yes. That's coming up. 
<laughs> we can pick our, our cross country teams for that. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. So anything else you got before we, uh, we go? Um, you know, we, we, we checked a lot of boxes today. I think, I think this is a good, good length, you know, nice run for, for most people. By the way, one thing I do want to, and I'll shamelessly plug this for you. You are one of the best coaches I know in the sport. You coach alongside Ryan Gelfi at Trails and Tarmac, same with David Laney. And um, I know you love talking with athletes about their training. And I know that there's a lot of folks who listen that, um, that would love to talk X's and O's and maybe there's even a way to work with you. So what's the best way to get in touch for that? Uh, yeah. I mean, Brett at trails and two at trails and tarmac. That's Brett with two T's, uh, Brett at trails and tarmac.com. You know, that's my direct email. Just shoot me an email. And we can, you know, we can always get things rolling. Um, if, if not me, you know, if, I mean, definitely the coaching season is picking up. That's for sure. As we head into these spring and summer races, um, We've got, you know, Trails and Tarmac. We've got a whole crew of coaches that are all, I am the worst runner of all the Trails and Tarmac coaches. And I take so much, I take so much pride in that. I am the only Trails and Tarmac coach who's never signed any sort of professional contract. Um, And I I just think that's so cool to be surrounded by that much uh, knowledge in the sport. And, you know, the coaches aren't just our coaches because they're good at running, um, I think they're good at running because they're very smart about their approach and what they've learned and how they can apply it to other runners. Cool. Well, man, I am already scheming for the next one. Maybe we'll be back in two or three weeks, but at the very least in early April, man, looking forward to it. Yeah. I'll give you at least a couple of weeks to find your phone and then figure out how to silence it. (laughs) And I'll send you a T9 text. I'm looking forward to it. Hey folks, thanks as always for listening. If you enjoyed the conversation, all I ask is that you give it a share on your social media platforms and that you leave a rating or review wherever you listen to this podcast. Until next time, this is The Single Track and I am your host, Finn Melanson.